And we've come at a full circle right to the end. Isaiah 65. Really flip the page over, you'll realize we're right at the end of the book. Uh, Isaiah, if you remember, begins with a lot of messages about judgment. Uh, Judah's in a terrible place of sin, and God has kind of put up with their rebellion long enough and says, Something's coming. You guys are going to get uh, deported off to Babylon, and you're going to be taken over the land. And through that discipline, I'm going to woo you back to myself. I'm going to call you back to myself. And so the book moves from, from a, a message of judgment into this message of hope. And that's kind of the momentum is from, is from moving us in some ways out of our uh, sin and into a place of obedience in life. And the last few weeks, if you remember, we were talking about Isaiah's vision of a king, a messianic king that would come, Jesus, uh, that we know in hindsight. And this king, Jesus, would be a servant. He's going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. And through him, everyone is going to be invited back into a restored relationship to God. So Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ comes, has this vision of what Jesus is going to do. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And so we finish up Isaiah. We've, we've kind of gone from the judgment to the themes of hope, the future hope of a Savior who's going to come. And now, beyond that, because of course we're, we're past the hope, you know, we know Jesus has come. Beyond that, Isaiah's vision stretches further to what's it going to be like uh, when all said and done. What is this new heavens and new earth? And so what I want to do is look at kind of these two sections together. The first section we're going to go through quickly, but I want us to, to consider this theme of what is God's project? I think that's a good word for it. What is God's project to bring blessing and reconciliation to this world? It's so important that we remember, that we keep this first and foremost in our minds, that God's heart is to flood the world with his healing love and grace, that he wants to bring the world back to himself. And so as much as we may live in a place of difficulty, and we can look around us and see all sorts of brokenness and evil and, and violence and hatred and all the rest, it's important for us as Christians to keep this hope first and foremost, uh, the same hope that the people of God had all through the centuries, is that when it's all said and done, God is going to come and set things to right. And how is he going to do that? And so I want us to look at these first these two sections together. The first one is about Jesus the servant that he read. And that he's going to transform the world through his preaching and through his ministry. Okay? And, and we become kind of invited to respond to Jesus in that, in that section by, by kind of giving our hearts to him and saying, Lord, we invite you to do this work here and now in need. Uh, in my family, in my workplace. Uh, Lord, come and, come and do it. And the second section uh, moves from, from describing just what Jesus is going to do through his life and ministry to the world that God is going to, to redeem and reconcile and transform to himself. So that makes sense? So we're kind of Jesus, the new creation, work with Jesus, and then some description of what this new creation is going to look like. So, so hold your Bibles up to 61. Uh, and go back to that first section that Keith read for us. Thanks, Keith. Isaiah 61. This is page 620 of your, uh, your pew Bibles. Now, you might remember, this sounds a bit familiar, uh, is that Jesus quotes this passage at the outset of his ministry. He is specifically drawing on Isaiah and saying, this, this thing that Isaiah was prophesying is exactly that which is going to come to pass in and through me. And so it's, it's helpful for us to go, okay, if Jesus quotes this, 
Pope himself reads this and then applies it to himself and says, this is now coming to pass through me. It's worth us saying, well, what is it that he has come to do? So take a look at, uh, at 61. It's a, it's a summary, in some ways, of God's life-altering grace <coughs> and healing. Life-altering grace and healing. I'm just going to read a portion of it here. Think about all of the, uh, there's seven or eight uh, really strong verbs of the work that Jesus wants to do and has done and is continuing to do in our world. Listen to this. The Lord has anointed me, Jesus' words. The Lord has anointed him to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those that are bound, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comfort for all who mourn, and for those that mourn a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The idea here is, in the context at the time, as you grieve, uh, if someone had passed away or whatnot, you would have ashes and you would cover yourself in the ashes, the symbol of your grieving. And Jesus is saying, in the place of grief in your life, in the place of brokenness and death, I'm going to replace that with an ornament of joy. So instead of being covered with the, with the thing of your grief, you're going to be covered with something that brings you joy in life. He's going to transform that, whatever that is in your life, that place of death into a place of love. Uh, an oil of gladness instead of mourning, same sort of thing. And a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So all these images of, of uh, not just brokenness, but sort of poor, uh, down, defeated, uh, deathly in some sense, depressed, grieving, all these very low emotional moments and states. And Jesus saying, I'm going to come and bring my life, and my goodness is going to pull you up out of these places and bring God's restoration. So much so that those that are in, currently in a place of grieving and sadness and brokenness, they're going to be called oaks of righteousness. And the picture here is one of strength and endurance and life and vitality, right? Oaks of righteousness, long-standing. You know, a tree takes a long time to grow. So this is something of permanence and value and, and life that God wants to bring about. Uh, planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God and bringing that kingdom to bear in the lives of everyone he encounters. And of course, if you think through the Gospels, Jesus is doing this sort of thing all the time, isn't he? Uh, liberating people from captivity. Whatever. Uh, mostly from sin. You know? Forgiving sins, bringing life, healing people. This is the ministry that he has come to do. And he's declaring God's promises. Before he even sets out, he's declaring the promises that God made through Isaiah, those are now coming true. They're being fulfilled, and they'll continue to be fulfilled in and through me. It's an incredible play. Mm -hmm. Because there's only one person who can make this stuff come to pass, and it's God himself. So when Jesus says, this is what I've come to do, he's saying nothing short of I'm not. Uh, and, of course, this is why he gets him killed. Uh, but he raises again. He's okay. All's well. He's come to bring that salvation and that restoration. And uh, this incredible, incredible good news. And of course, as Christians, kind of on the other side of this, of Jesus' earthly ministry, we can look back and go, yeah, it was brilliant. All kinds of amazing stuff happened. Uh, but there's a problem. Our world is still full of sin and death and brokenness. So Jesus, what do we do with that? Uh, while you were here, things were great. 
and you minister to all sorts of people, but uh, things are not as they should be in my world. Does that make sense? There's a problem. And as much, uh, friends, as Christians, as we may have experienced the life and salvation of, of Jesus, we know that our world is still hurting broken, and it's not, uh, it's not too difficult to look around and to witness that. And what do we do with that? And the way the biblical authors talk about how God is going to deal with the problems of the world is twofold. Again, first, it's about Jesus, that at the cross, he takes the sin and the evil of death that marks our world, and defeats it through his own death. And by his resurrection, opens a new way forward for humanity to be back into relationship with God. And that's the good news of the gospel. But the larger vision, having considered that, is that is this vision of new creation that God is going to actually transform his world in some very significant ways. And one way of, of thinking about this, because it, it's like it's like this has started and yet it's not really finished. So we can say, like when Jesus came, this new creation kind of stuff, this life, this transformation, this grace, and the forgiveness from sins, that's, that's happened. This is happening. We can experience this now. But it's not, you know, there's still the brokenness in our world. So how do you kind of wrestle with those two tensions? And one way of thinking about it is Jesus has inaugurated his new creation. The reign of God has been inaugurated at the resurrection. And it will come to its completion, its fullness, when he comes again. So we live now between uh, the two advents, we'll, we say, right? We live between the first coming of Christ, when he has begun to set his world to right through forgiveness and redemption, but we also live in anticipation of a second advent, when he will come again. And we know we need this because, again, the brokenness in our world, the brokenness inside of us, as much as we experience the salvation and his forgiveness in our lives, and see uh, the transforming of a new community of people through the church, we know it's not all, it's not done, it's not perfect. We long to see heaven come to earth, right? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right? Is the prayer. So what do we do with that? The Christian vision is that Jesus, our Lord, will himself resurrect us. And when he returns, he's going to bring this new creation, he's going to set the world to rights with his justice and his love. And that's what Isaiah 65 is about. So having 61 in mind, who Jesus is and what he's come to do, now flip over to 65, and you get some really neat uh, images and language to get an idea of what, what is God going to do with this project? Where is this heading? What is he actually going to transform in our world? So 65, starting with verse 17, is going to for us. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because this passage, there's there's elements that make it sound like it's far in the future. This is there's no more death. Things are really really good, um, but it's we're not entirely sure where this fits per se in terms of maybe your end times theology. But suffice to say, the picture throughout Scripture, unified message throughout Scripture, is that at the end of it, when Christ returns, God is going to set things to right, and His righteousness and His kingdom will come. And there will be a creation of new heavens and new earth. So whatever, where you want to slot it, we'll leave that to you for now. Uh, but let this vision kind of uh, take take the place at the very end of your kind of timeline, if I can put it that way. Uh, so what what does Isaiah say? What does he say to us? One of the things 
that he mentions is what Jerusalem. So look at verse 17 and 18. I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered. We're going to look at what those former things are in a second. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Jerusalem itself has a huge significance for the biblical authors. Uh, so at, in the heart of the promised land in Jerusalem, uh, it's like it's like this is the place where God is truly worshipped. This is the place where the temple is. So Jerusalem becomes symbolic of something bigger than just Jerusalem. It becomes this picture of uh, what ultimately our world should look like. The place where we can interact closely with God, where He dwells with us. It becomes a, a picture of sort of the ultimate promised land, of a, a restored creation. It's the place where, like I said, the temple is, where you can worship God. So Jerusalem isn't just sort of city. It becomes this kind of symbol uh, of a sort of reign that God is going to have in the world. He's going to set things to right. And this is picked up by John in Revelation when he talks about Jerusalem. And you realize as you read Revelation, he's not talking about a city. He's talking about the whole world. The whole world is going to become a new creation. Uh, it's not just sort of, you know, whatever sort of political geography you've got going on. It's talking about something much bigger. Jerusalem's a picture of that. It's a picture where all of human cultures and all the diversity come together and work together in peace and harmony for God. That sounds really good. Really good. Where all the cultures and nations of the world can gather together in peace and harmony and get on with the work of of building God's world together with him. Like that kind of, it's sort of beyond imagination. And yet that's the picture we get in scripture. It's, uh, so it's not just a rematch city, it's something of a whole new creation project. So what are the four things, I have four things about new creation that I want us to think about. And let these settle in your hearts a sort of hope that we can anticipate as Christians today. Four things about the new creation. I want to spend a little bit of time on the first one. I'm going to move more quickly through the other three. The first one is the aspect of death turning to a place of joy. Death turning to joy. Let's look at verse 20. He says, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live up to his days. And I think what Isaiah is doing is he uses two terrible tragedies to contrast the life of joy and abundance that awaits all of those who have come to Christ and will experience his new creation glory. Takes two of the worst, the worst places of tragedy and death that we can think of as 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 contrast for us. Uh, we've never lost a child, but some of you maybe have whether through miscarriage or stillbirth or something, I don't know. But I can, uh, I can guess that that is a searing loss. It's a searing loss. It's almost beyond words to give expression to that sort of grief of losing a child. I, I'm not even going to say it. I think I know what it means. I have no idea. If I'm honest, I have no idea. But I imagine that is a weight and a grief that one, it marks one, carries one throughout one's life. And like it, though different, the death of an adult who shows so much promise, uh, shows so much potential, and yet dies at a young age, is a similar sort of grief and loss. 
And many of you perhaps can think of those that have passed away uh, in your life, in your time on earth, uh, where, where you've heard people say, yeah, they died young. Whether it was a teenager or a young adult, or even someone, you know, someone in their 50s, 60s, 70s, sometimes we say, yeah, they died young. You know, they were, well, what happened? There was no cancer, there was no ongoing sickness. What was it? They died young. And Isaiah's saying, take the worst anguish that you can imagine, the worst sort of anguish or grief from death that you face now, whether that's the, the loss of someone close to you who you love that died early, or maybe the loss of a baby, and know this, that God brings his healing grace and love into those places of grief and woundedness for you today. But also, there will come a day where God is going to take the very potential for death to rob us of our loved ones and remove that potential forever. So the very grief, the potential for grief, and the potential for death to rob us and hurt us in taking loved ones will in itself be removed. No more will there be that sense of grief that could come when a baby is born and dies a few days later. No more of that. No more someone in the prime of their life losing their life. No more of that. <clears throat> Throughout Scripture, death is described as an enemy. Uh, we talk a lot about death in different ways in our culture. We can talk about it as you know, just another path. <laughs> or, you know, it's just a transition to something else. And we can frame it in these sorts of ways, which can be helpful and unhelpful in various sort of capacities. Uh, but vividly, more often than not, death is an enemy. It robs us of the potential to live out our God-given vocation as image bearers who contribute to God's good world and join with Him in the life and the joy and the culture making that He wants to do. Death interrupts our contribution to that. And we read Genesis, right? Death is a result of our sinfulness that enters the world. Uh, because of our attempts at sin, and sin being all of our attempts to say no to God, whatever form that takes. And that makes a lot of sense. When you say no to the one who is the source of life, and you unplug yourself, so to speak, from him, well, what's going to happen? It's going to result in a place where death can come. Death can come and be at work in our world. So sin leads to that sense of death. And you get Paul in 1 Corinthians saying things like the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You get John in Revelation saying death will be no more. But death reminds us, folks, that all is not right in the world. There's a senselessness to death. There's a, uh, sometimes a meaninglessness to death. Why did this happen? We try and find a purpose to it. And there isn't one. This is just not as it should be. And I was having a conversation with someone last week who's very upset about how uh, someone was nearing death that was paid for. And there was just this realization, this is not right. It is not right to see our friends and family suffer in this way. Something's wrong. And it points to this issue, this realization in our hearts that our world is not right. God has to come and do something here. And so Isaiah describes a world where that pain of death is removed. Friends, Jesus has defeated this by his resurrection, and he will destroy death fully when he comes again. And uh, as we await that future, there's a word of hope, 
just speaking about that and children and all of that. Uh, Jesus is present with compassion and grace to do just what he said in chapter 61, which is to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And so if you are in a place this morning grieving, uh, of being fearful or torn apart about what death has done in your own life, hear that God has come to bring his grace and salvation and his love to you and to minister to you in that place of hurt. That's very important to just say from the outset. So know that, that he offers that love and that healing for you today. So look back at, at uh, 65, 18. 18, 19, 20. No more will there be in it an infant who lives for a few days or an old man who shall die a hundred years old. No more of this. And up in 17, what does he say? The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever. And that's the first point that I wanted to make these four. I said it's been more time on this. Don't worry, the other three are too quick. Uh, but death and the horror of death will be transformed, ultimately, in God's project of creation, will be transformed into our joy. And as you read about joy in this passage, it just keeps coming up over and over and over again. Be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. Behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be gladness. There's just an overwhelming sense of happiness and awesomeness in the new creation. Like, it's just really, really good. It's lots of fun. It's really happy, and everyone's joyful. Not because we're somehow aloof and not aware of the brokenness that was once in our world, but because the surpassing love and grace of God brings a, a richness, an overflowing sense of his life and vitality and wellness to our hearts, and to our families, and to our communities. This sounds just so good, because it is easy for me to get caught up in my own sense of grief or brokenness or sadness or whatever it might be, and here the, the defining characteristic of our life in new creation is joy. It's really good. Really good. So what does, what does uh, God do beyond just transforming death to joy? Look at the second one, uh, the second point. The second one in verses 21 to 22 is this. Listen to this. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. You know, what's going on here? What do you mean? Basically, it means with death undone, not only is the potential sorrow for death undone, transformed joy, but the, the completion of good projects, it's hard for me to kind of get words around, uh, the completion of good projects that you do in your life. Uh, so if you have a great desire to build your own house, you know, uh, but you never get to, or uh, you plant a vineyard, but you never get to sample it, right? That's the picture Isaiah gets. So basically he's saying, look, with death removed, no longer are the projects that you start and never get to finish going to happen. You get to actually enjoy and complete the things that are on your heart to start and to complete does that make sense? It's a little it's a bit hard to wrap our minds around, I think. So in Genesis 1, this all comes back to the idea of image bearing. To be image bearers in the world, God creates humanity to be image bearers, is that we join with him in the ruling of the world, 
which means to cultivate the raw potential of creation and bring about something new out of it. And so the primary vision for this is gardening, right? God says, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, rule it, be my image bearers. What does it get to do? Go garden. What's gardening? It's the cultivation of plants, trees, to bring about more than they do just on their own, right? So you could have kind of a wild raspberry bush just going to town somewhere, uh, but it can get all, full of all kinds of nonsense and get unruly and all of that. But if you take someone who knows awesome things about raspberries and kind of comes alongside of it, they can bring more raspberries out of it. Better raspberries, right? Or you take a plot of land and it's just kind of growing weeds and whatever. It's like, yeah, that's great. It's growing some weeds. But if you take an experienced gardener who comes alongside, they can bring awesome things out of that plot of land, right? That's the image of ruling from Genesis 1. The idea is that all of us are called, not necessarily gardeners, but it's probably a bad idea. I'm not a gardener, but anyway. All of us are called with whatever it is that we are good at and can do to come alongside God and bringing about something better. So whether that's through the arts or through the trades or through government or finance or economics or whatever, the call is to come alongside what God is doing and bring about something better. So what you have here is a restoration of the human vocation. No longer will you be at work trying to do your image bearing, getting it started, getting it going, only to die and not see it completed. No more of that. No more of that in new creation. There's a restoration of vocation to live out and complete all of the things that we are called to do to come alongside God with. It's this brilliant, brilliant picture. We get to join in with God in bringing his order and his beauty and his light to all the places that are chaotic and ugly and dark. Come alongside with him. That's the human vocation. So Isaiah goes exactly to this picture. You're going to build houses and inhabit them. You're going to build your vineyards, plant them, and eat the fruit. So in the new creation, God, God is going to restore our human vocation back to what it's meant to be. It's not sitting on a cloud with a heart. It's just not. There's no picture of this here. Right? And the word God uses to describe this life is is in verse 22, I think this is great. He says, My chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Long enjoy the work of their hands. Incredible. So, the first two things, and we get to the last two quickly, but the first two things of Jesus' new creation. First, the undoing of death, the turn from sorrow to joy. Second, the restoration of our human vocation. Right? Of, of a meaningful life of creating and crafting and being able to enjoy it. I don't know what that is for you. What would you like to do? I don't know. Do you like to build? Do you like to garden? Do you, are you good with numbers? Are you an artist? Are you a tradesperson? Are you, do you drive things? Like, like, I don't, are you a mechanical? Do you like building stuff? I don't know. Whatever that is. Whatever it is, the passion that God has put in you to do. Like, are you good at home renovations? Are you really good at raising kids? Are you good at caring for people and coming alongside them and bringing healing life? I don't know. Whatever it is, this is part of your image bearing. And now it's no longer corrupted. You get to live it out, build the house, and live in it and enjoy it. Does that make sense? God is going to take the vocation that you are currently given, and now with death and evil removed, it's renewed and you get to live it out in all of its glory. So whether you're a nurse or you're a carpenter or you're a painter, 
or I don't know, fill in the blank. It continues on. The work and the passion for whatever that is in life you have today does not die or stop in the new creation. There's a continuity within yourself in the projects and the passions that God's put in you to see them fulfilled in all their great potential in his new world. So let that sink in. I don't know what that is for you, but let that sink in. Maybe you like to crochet. You can just crochet. <laughs> the best crocheting. I don't know what you crochet. Just the best scarf ever. It just goes and goes. I don't know. Whatever it is, right? But it will be redeemed. So the restoration of human vocation. Now look at verse 23. He summarizes this for us. They shall no longer labor in vain. Right? No more going about your job and it's just terrible. The rest of your vocation is going to be restored. Or bear children for calamity. Right? No more death to young kids. Done with that. Right? That's the first two things. But then he says this. More quickly now. Verse 23. The restoration of intimacy with God. Look at this. Verse 23 24. Instead of sorrow and death, there's a being present to God. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. What is this? but a return to the immediacy and the intimacy of a life with God like we see back in Genesis. A deep communion and friendship with God. And like the, the hope in the face of death uh, and the restoration of our vocation, which we can't experience here now as Christians, we can also experience a measure of communion and fellowship with God now, right? Through Christ by the Spirit. But that itself will also come to completion in the new heavens and new earth. And finally, the fourth one. There's the undoing of danger and pain. Look at verse 25. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. Like, what? What's going on? The very order of predator and prey and death to be necessary to bring food so that you can keep living, that whole kind of process, is now transformed somehow. I don't know how, I don't know how the lion's staying alive, but there he goes. Uh, it's all being changed in some way. And this final phrase from Jesus, from the Lord, in verse 25, summarizes the whole theme. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Brilliant. So what are the four things in God's new creation world that I want, I want to be settled in your heart so that you can start to kind of live these out now? Instead of sadness and death, there will be a sharing of God's abundant, life-giving joy. And friends, in the places now where we feel touched by death and by grief, we too, with our hope in Christ, can experience His joy as not administered in those places. Instead of sadness and death, joy. Instead of frustration in our work, an enjoyment and a satisfaction in our work. And you are called even now, and wherever you work, whatever that is that you set your hands to, to invite God to be present in it and to recognize this is part of my image bearing. I get to come alongside whoever in this place as I stack shelves in Walmart or flip burgers, whatever it is. I am coming alongside the work that God is doing to bring order and beauty and light to others, whatever that is, whether it's helping supply someone's needs or helping to bring about something that's going to better someone's life, whatever that might be. So, some sadness and death to joy, from a frustration in work to an enjoyment and satisfaction in work, from a separation from God to an intimacy with God, and from destruction and pain and creation 
to community and peace. Friends, this is what Jesus has come to accomplish through his resurrection. We begin to experience it now, but it's going to come in its fullness when we come together. It's this remarkable, remarkable vision. And we're invited, friends, wherever we are at in life, and I think this is a good way of kind of wrapping up Isaiah for us, to be reminded that in all the places where we feel the sin and the death and the brokenness of our world, to know and be reminded that Christ has come as that suffering servant to bear our sins, to die for them so that we may have life. It, that's so important. Absolutely, that's the gospel. But life for what? What's life look like after that? It looks like this. It looks like abiding hope and joy in the places of death. It looks like meaning and satisfaction in your work in the places where it's frustrating. It means intimacy and communion with God in the place where you once felt separated from Him. It means community and peace with others where it once felt like hurting and destroying. That is the vision that God has for His world. And it's the vision that He calls us as a church to start to live out now. And so wherever you head into this new year, maybe there'll be places of grief and death. Maybe there'll be a change in your work and it, it just feels so hard. Maybe it'll be a, a season of dryness and your spiritual life may feel far from God. Maybe, maybe the people and the family that you were once connected with that suddenly feels distant and broken, the community feels gone. Whatever, whatever the place is, where you, where you feel the brokenness of our world, God invites you with this vision to come, to extend His grace and His peace, to be present in the place of death and say, this is not the final way, there is hope. To be present in your work when it feels frustrating and say, God, can bring life and satisfaction here, even though it feels really hard today. And to stand in the place of separation and feeling far from God when your prayer life feels like it's kind of dry and you're reading that Bible thing that Nick made you do on January 1st. And it's just, just like, what is this? You know? That in that place of feeling distant from God, that you can know He is present, He is alive, He is here. I can't feel it right now. There's going to come a day where I'm never going to have to worry about that again. And in the places where it feel disconnected from family and community, there's going to be a day where our world will be marked by peace and grace for all nations. How that settles in your bones, this idea, this vision of God's hope for this world and of God's abiding life and grace for you now and today as you follow Jesus and encounter the brokenness of the world. And God invites you to send his light and his hope into that place. Does that make sense?